Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. For the first time ever, uh, a couple weeks ago, I bought a book solely for its cover. As in, I'm not even going to read this book. I just liked the cover. Early on in my marriage, I quickly learned that a book can be a book as well as decor. But now I have crossed this threshold, and I don't know where it leads, of actually seeing a book as only decor, at least with old fancy ones. So I have standards. But because of this recent journey, I have begun paying more attention to the covers of books. If you've ever been into a a bookstore, and especially a used bookstore, and you happen to find yourself on the sci-fi fantasy aisle, and you look at books from the 1980s and 90s, you'll quickly discover that a lot of their cover art is terrible. <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of bad art, at least to my eye. And I guess us nerds didn't rule the world as we do now, so it's hard to get cool cover art back in the day. But I recently discovered something that I think adds to the terribleness of this art. Apparently, according to the internet, most of these artists for these book covers never had to read the books. Right? Instead which they probably didn't want to anyway. But instead, they'd be given a few details. There's a teenage boy, a sword, a dwarf, a love interest, which is basically all of fantasy literature, so that's not helpful. Um, But they wouldn't be given any details as to what these characters looked like, the place that they'd visit, uh, where they're from, Uh, even simple things like what is the hair color of the main character. No, they didn't have that. And so they just imagine something completely separate from the book, and the publisher would take it and slap it on the cover. Good enough, right. Now, should you get past the general weirdness or the awfulness of the art on the cover, as you read through the actual novel, you discover that the cover is extraordinarily unhelpful in helping you visualize the world or the characters in the story. And so if you kept trying to reference the cover art and what it presented, you'd find yourself very, very confused as you read. Because you'd look at the cover and say, when does this blue-eyed fellow with a sword go into a forest? When the book I'm reading has no one who has blue eyes, swords don't exist, and it's a desert. Right? You'd think that you were reading the wrong story. Now, I think this jarring experience is often what Jesus' disciples kept finding themselves in. Their expectations of who Jesus is and what he's doing kept getting in the way of what God laid out long, long ago in the scriptures through the prophets. Because in the story of the Messiah, this chosen king that God would send to deliver his people, the Jews of Jesus' day had created this cover that depicted a, a powerful emperor who would destroy his enemies and create this perfect kingdom of only good Jewish men and women. But instead of that, Jesus keeps subverting it. In fact, now he begins to tell his disciples that instead of seeking power and raising an army, he is off to suffer and die. And the disciples, as they have followed Jesus, they keep wondering how the cover art that they are holding on to for this story is going to work. And so they they keep wanting Jesus to change in order to fit their picture of him. Today, we're going to be in Matthew 17, but before we get into our passage, we need to catch up with the story first. The disciples find themselves in a bit of a pickle, we'll say, especially our favorite loudmouth Peter. 
They saw Jesus feed over 4,000 people with just a few small uh, fish and seven loaves. And it was immediately followed by Jesus rebuking the Pharisees and their teaching, the religious leaders. And then it was capped off by him finally revealing that he is this Messiah that they've been looking for. He's the Christ. And so you can imagine their excitement and anticipation, right? The years that they have spent following him are finally taking them to where they only dreamed of going. Because in not too long a while, at least according to their cover and in their narrative, Jesus is going to raise this army. He's going to defeat Rome, who's occupying their land. He's going to establish righteousness within the Jewish temple and government. And then his closest disciples are going to share in that glory naturally. But then Jesus, right after this, tells them instead, no, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Well, according to the disciples, well, that just can't be right. And so, metaphorically speaking, Peter shows Jesus the cover art for the story of the Messiah, uh, one of a rich, fabulous king conquering his enemies and making his followers wealthy. And Jesus, also metaphorically, tears it up hands back the book, and then calls Peter Satan because he's trying to change the plot. Now, as much as we like to hate on Peter at times, I figure really he was just the first one to speak. Because none of Jesus' disciples saw suffering and death as part of the plan. And despite all the miracles and the teachings that have happened in the past, I think at this point, the disciples seriously begin to question whether they were wrong to follow Jesus. What he's doing doesn't match up with the cover. Maybe Jesus is crazy. But while instructing them to secrecy about his identity as the Messiah, Jesus promises that some of them will see the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, come into his kingdom. And so now we pick up with our passage today, starting in Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days of this, Jesus, or after this, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now, at a quick glance, Jesus takes a few of his disciples on a hike, He starts glowing, he meets with old dead Jewish celebrities, God speaks from a cloud, and the disciples are terrified. End of story, and a weird story at that. Of course, however, there is more to it. See, for six days, the disciples wrestle with their doubts about Jesus and what he means about suffering and death. And for those six days, Jesus seems quite content to let them squirm with this. But then he makes his move. Now, one thing that's interesting here is that it seems that Jesus actually purposefully orchestrates this whole event solely for his disciples. So notice, it's not that they just all went up a high mountain. It's that Jesus specifically took them there and that he led them up. And when the vision ends, Jesus is the one who comes to them and reassures them with a touch and comforts them. 
And then throughout this whole experience, it's given from the perspective of the disciples. So in verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them, as in where he was standing in relationship to them. Verse 3, Moses and Elijah appeared before them. Verse 5, the voice from the cloud speaks to them, not to Jesus. And in verse 8, we actually don't know when Moses and Elijah disappear. Simply, when the disciples looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So whatever is going on here, Jesus' intention seems to be that it is all for his disciples. It's not that, they, that he was just going about his business and they followed him along as normal. This is all for them. And it seems that where his words have failed to help them understand who he is and what he's doing, he's now changing tactics. But not after letting them wrestle for six days, and even then he's only taking three of them. Now, again, just taking a quick glance. The disciples should, at the very least, recognize that Jesus is more than he seems. He's powerful, for he shines with his own light. He's important, for he converses with probably the two most famous Jewish prophets, which, one fabulous fact I need to throw in here, Moses and Elijah, due to their mysterious disappearances, are within Jewish tradition called the deathless ones, along with Enoch. That was too cool to leave out. Anyway, so Jesus meets with the deathless ones, these two famous Jewish celebrities, and God speaks from heaven telling the disciples that they must listen to Jesus. And so, in light of the difficult conversation about suffering and death and taking up one's cross to follow him, this story, again, at the very least, at a very quick glance, shows the disciples that they can and should trust Jesus regardless of whether they get it or not. After all, he's bigger, he's better, and he's brighter. He glows. But there is more here, or I think. Of course, it's the Bible, and it's Jesus. It's very, very deep. See, I think that Jesus wants us to understand why he must suffer and die. That is the point of this whole experience. So let's read through this passage again, starting in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now, as we went through it again, you may have noticed words and images that reminded you of other stories and messages in the Bible. And as we slow down, there is quite a lot of them. Tim Mackey, who is known for the Bible Project, calls these things hyperlinks. Like when you're scrolling through a Wikipedia page and you come across a word that's blue and bold or whatever, and you click on it and it takes you to what was being referenced. Like you find more information that adds to the current article you're reading. And so the Bible has these hyperlinks everywhere, both Old and New Testament. And again, there is a lot of them in this story. And here with Jesus' transfiguration, these hyperlinks are important because, again, I don't think he just wants his disciples to trust him because he can glow. 
He wants them and us to understand the significance of who he is, what he's doing, and why it must be so. So let's start with probably the most prominent hyperlink or hyperlinks. So here's just a few of them. There's a high mountain. There is a bright cloud. There is a person's face who's shining. God speaks from said cloud. And what Peter calls tents is also the same word, or sorry, he calls shelters, is also the same word for tents or tabernacles. So does any of that sound familiar? Right? It's the story of, of the Exodus and Moses, right? Of God bringing his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And if those details weren't enough to help us clue into that story, well, Moses himself appears and begins talking with Jesus. So why all these connections then to Moses? Well, again, we're, a lot of us are probably familiar with Jesus being the Messiah or the Christ, this promised king from long ago in the Old Testament from the line of King David who'd save God's people. But there's actually another character that Israel was on the lookout for that we find in the Bible, a person whom Moses himself promised would one day come. And we find this person promised in Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. Moses is speaking here. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked the Lord your God at Horeb, or Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. And so as we go back to this reference, we realize there is another hyperlink in this story, right? Not just to Moses, but actually to this prophet. Because what does the voice from the shining cloud say? Listen to him, just as Moses commanded Israel long ago for when the prophet comes. So all these connections that Jesus and Matthew are making to Moses and this prophet is to change the cover art they're holding on to. Because the story of Jesus doesn't just start with what people were expecting from the Messiah. It actually began with God's promise to send them a prophet who is like Moses in his authority, but who also, strangely, would look very normal, just like them. But despite looking like them, he also has the words of God in his mouth. And like Moses, he also shares a similar mission. And that's where these connections to the Exodus story come into play. Because just as Moses delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt, so this prophet too will deliver God's people when he finally arrives. And it should be noted that just as the journey for Moses was difficult and full of suffering, so too should it be expected of this prophet. So that's the first hyperlink. The second hyperlink that we see come up again and again is about the prophet Elijah. And so he actually pops in, just like Moses, so that makes it easy to connect. But Elijah, too, has a significant story on a high mountain in which he encounters God. So after his stunning victory over the prophets of Baal, which is this foreign deity that um, Israel was worshiping, he's on the run for his life from this pagan queen. He goes out of the country all the way back to Mount Sinai, and there, in a cave on the mountain, he is met by God. So however, there 
Elijah also has very strong connections to the Messiah because he is prophesied to be the harbinger of the end of the day of the Lord throughout the prophetic writings. And specifically within Jewish tradition, and as you take the prophets together, you find that Elijah's return would be connected to the coming of the Messiah who would establish his um, righteous kingdom on the earth. And so these hyperlink back to another passage from a very small book called Malachi. This is Malachi 4, verse 4. It says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb, Sinai, for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Okay, those verses are cryptic enough. We don't have time to get into Malachi, and we'll save that for Pastor Josh. Today, uh, the hyperlink to Elijah, though, signifies that the time of the Messiah has come. And to further establish this, right, Elijah actually appears with Moses, just as Elijah and Moses are connected in Malachi. And again, it should be noted that just as Moses' journey was one of suffering, so too was Elijah's, as he often found him persecuted, despised, and on the run. So Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and despite the disciples' doubts, he is still on mission. Now, there is one more major hyperlink, and it's a bit odd, actually. Within the Hebrew Bible, there is another character that the Jews were on the lookout for, and he usually gets folded into the Messiah, which makes sense and actually is true. However, when he's actually referenced, there's something unique about him. And he doesn't really have a title. He doesn't have a name. We just have a description. And this, this description is, one like a son of man. And so you may remember that at the beginning, Jesus promised his disciples that they would see the son of man coming into his kingdom. And later, as the disciples are actually coming down the mountain, Jesus again references the son of man. He bookends their experience with this hyperlink. So then, who is this son of man, or one like the son of man? Now, there are some prophets in the Old Testament whom angels or God calls sons of man, but when they do, uh, it's just a poetic of saying, uh, sorry, it's a, just a poetic way of saying that they are human, right? But Jesus, I think, is actually specifically hyperlinking to a very specific passage, specific, uh, and it's in Daniel, where we find this vision about one like a son of man who comes with a high mountain and clouds and establishes a kingdom. So I'm going to read a good chunk of this passage because I think it's going to be important for us. This is Daniel 7, starting in verse 9. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands upon ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Skipping ahead a little bit, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, this high mountain also 
shows up earlier in Daniel, representing this eternal kingdom established by God. So that, too, points us here, sneakily enough. Now, what's interesting, that one thing among many things that are interesting, is that Daniel, in this vision, clearly doesn't know what to do with this son of man, because he says he's like one. He seems human, but he also seems different. He comes in with the clouds or whatever. Like That's not what normal humans do. But coming back to Matthew 17, Jesus' face shines, and his clothes become white like light. Now, I don't think I'm reading too much into it to say, because of the other hyperlinks to this passage, that Jesus, though he is called the Son of Man, looks strangely uh, similar to the Ancient of Days in Daniel's vision. Now, as we mull over this possible connection, the shining cloud speaks to the disciples and identifies Jesus as something more as well. Because he says, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So pause, because I think there's something else that puts this in greater focus. Now, in being brought up the mountain by Jesus, the disciples are actually stepping into the roles of Moses and Elijah. And it's mirrored by Moses and Elijah's actual presence. Jesus isn't Moses and Elijah in this case. It's the disciples. Because as... Um, So these two prophets both go up a high mountain in order to meet with God. Moses goes up to receive the Torah or the teaching or what we call law. Elijah goes up this same mountain to find God as he's hiding from a pagan queen and needs direction. And now the disciples, too, are brought up a high mountain, just like Moses and Elijah. And we should be thinking, are they going to encounter God? And they do, right? While they encounter the Father who speaks from the cloud they receive a different revelation, a greater revelation than either the law that Moses received or the prophecy or direction of Elijah. Because on that mountain, they see Jesus, who is the prophet promised long ago. He is the Messiah that the ministry of Elijah was preparing the way for. And he is the son of man foretold in Daniel's vision who will establish an eternal kingdom. But even more than that, which certainly the disciples never saw on the cover of the book, is that Jesus is the Son of God, whom has always known the love and the delight of the Father. And so when the disciples look up in terror, it's fitting that they see only Jesus, because Jesus only is the one they need to see. And everything, the disciples' fear of Jesus' talks of suffering and death, of betrayal and crosses, now stands in light of the everlasting, indestructible kingdom that the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, is given. All these hyperlinks to Moses and to Elijah and to the Son of Man reveal that Jesus is the culmination of God's ancient plan to rescue his people and establish the kingdom of heaven. We see it through the entire story of the Bible. And while it goes against the cover art, the disciples that keep clinging to, his suffering and his death that he keeps talking about are the means by which he will accomplish the promises given through the prophet, the Messiah, and the Son of Man. So what then does all this mean for those of us who follow Jesus, both then and now? Well, within the story, the disciples are given two commands. And I think, unsurprisingly, that they're both intentional and they're meant for us today as well. First, the Father tells them to listen to Jesus, which that's probably true in all cases, right? You should always listen to Jesus. However, 
here, I think the father is actually, he's addressing something specific. Because six days previous, the disciples refused to listen to Jesus. Actually, to the point where one of them takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him for being off plan. Because what the disciples need to realize that is that Jesus is going to suffer and die, that he must suffer and die. And this, while contrary to the cover art of the Jews, is actually where the plot has always going. We have to listen. And in fact, what we find over and over again throughout the Bible is that Jesus's glory is always, almost always revealed in his suffering that there cannot be glory and suffering without the other for Jesus. Now, I suspect that we too, just like the disciples, don't want suffering and glory connected. Because if Jesus is glorified through his suffering, what does that mean for those who follow him? The disciples, despite the vision that they just experienced, continue to avoid this because they know what it means for them. Now, as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus again instructs them to not tell anyone what they saw until he's been raised from the dead. I, I am going to die still, right? But I will come back. And you'd think that by now they'd at least be curious about it, try to, you know, test, is it true? And instead, uh, they sidestep it by this weird theological question about Elijah, who's supposed to come first. Again, referencing Malachi. But Jesus doesn't allow them to deflect says, yes, Elijah was John the Baptist. But again, just as John the Baptist suffered and was killed, so too is the glorious Son of Man going to be. And so then we get this delightful verse 13. And the, uh, the, then the disciples understood that Jesus was talking to them about John the Baptist. I have all this, everything they just saw, they still don't get about Jesus. They still avoid it. But they at least now understand that John the Baptist, who actually suffered and died, was supposed to suffer and die. The disciples want glory without suffering. They want a life where Jesus gives them wealth and power, where they're safe and popular. But it can't be so. As the disciples regather in Galilee once more, Jesus tells all 12 of them this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. But on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Right? At least this time, they're finally not avoiding it to the point where they're just sad about it. For us today, we are still tempted by the image of a Jesus who doesn't suffer, who doesn't appear weak by dying, who grants us the power to be comfortable and secure and entertained. As much as we accept the cross as a piece of decor, we still miss it as a calling. But again... The glory of God is revealed in his suffering. And Jesus himself seems to tell us that his suffering on the cross is actually where he's most truly seen. And as the Father commands, we need to listen to him in this. Now, as we've been talking about glory, that's one of those words that we really only use in, in church. Vaguely, we figure it means something like honoring respect. But in the Bible, when glory is used, it's talking about something or someone's value or substance. Uh, quite literally, glory is weight. Um, so at least using the Hebrew language, I am more glorious than most of you because I am bigger than you. So, ha, right? But in John chapter 12, we come across this story where Jesus tells us a specific moment when he is going to be glorified, as in when he is going to be most fully seen for his value and substance and his identity, who he is. And so we start this story in verse 20 of, of John chapter 12. 
It says, Now there were some Greeks who, among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip went in turn, uh, in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So these Greeks come to see Jesus, right? They just want to visit him. They want to get to know him. Where, right? That's all, they, that's all they want and what they're expecting. Jesus hears this, and instead he offers them something even more. Ah, you want to see me? Well, I will give you a moment when I am fully seen, right? And when is this moment? Continuing on, verse 24, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And that hour, that moment in which Jesus is fully seen for who he is, is not on that high mountain with Moses and Elijah shining. Right? Instead, it's on another hill outside Jerusalem where instead of radiating light, his face shines with blood. Instead of being in the company of the deathless ones, he is instead dying with two rebels who curse him. And instead of his three closest friends, there is a crowd of his enemies mocking him, turning his own words against him, urging him to suffer and die even while he forgives them. And this, Jesus tells us, is when he is glorified, when his majesty and his greatness is on full display for everyone to see. The cross, if you will, is the true transfiguration of Jesus. This is where we truly see Jesus for who he is, where we find all the plot lines leading, where the heart of God is laid bare, and where we also see what it means to follow so throughout the story of Jesus, we keep seeing the glory of God revealed through suffering. And just as it was for the disciples, it's probably troubling for us. People who like to suffer are not healthy people. But Jesus is determined to suffer, and he repeatedly warns his disciples that it is coming, him first and foremost, and then for them as his followers. But why must it be this way? I have a thought. In an earlier letter the Apostle John makes this simple statement about God's identity. He says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, love is a lot of things. But one of the things we miss about love, especially when we are young and full of hormones, is that to love someone means to willingly suffer because of them. At weddings, we speak of love as something eternal, which in light of God's love is true, but in all actuality, and not to make us too depressed this morning, we are committing ourselves to another person who will one day die. At some point, the people that we love are going to die, and because we love them, we will suffer. Or to be less dramatic, being committed to another human being who is imperfect, to say the least, perhaps wrong on occasion, and possibly selfish on others, is going to cause us to suffer. 
And the only way to escape that pain is simply to not love, to not care, to harden your heart and be an unfeeling monster until you draw your last breath. But real love is ready to pay the cost, even though it means suffering. And so for the God who is love, he can only be most fully seen when he is suffering because of it. That the revelation of his love is the revelation of himself. And there is no place more clear than Jesus on the cross. And so what is nonsensical and terrifying to the disciples is the most natural thing for God to do because it comes from who he is. That in order to save broken humanity, whom he loves so much, the Son of God becomes human and is broken so that he might make us whole in him. That is love. That is the glory of God. And it meant a whole world of suffering. And so for us who follow Jesus, it means that we too must expect to suffer. After all, we too are commanded to love our enemies, that we too are promised to experience the rejection and hostility that Jesus faced in the world. And if we are God's children, then we must prepare to suffer with him in his love for this lost world. And this, I think, is where that second command now comes into play. That as Jesus comes after this vision and touches his terrified disciples with their faces planted in the ground, he also tells them, get up, don't be afraid. Yes, don't be afraid about the vision and the voice from the cloud, but also don't be afraid to listen to me, to follow me in my suffering. Because if we are God's children, if we are following Jesus, then we also have the hope of the glory to come. When Jesus fully comes into this indestructible eternal kingdom, where he rights all wrongs and heals all pains and the broken things become whole. As the Apostle, John, or Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the churches in Rome. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What Peter, James, and John saw on that mountain in Galilee was meant to hold them through the time of suffering that had to come. It was to help them to listen and to not be afraid as they followed Jesus. And one day, love will not mean suffering. One day, it will mean Jesus in all of his splendor and we with him. But until then, and as always, we must heed the commands the disciples heard on that high mountain. Listen to Jesus and don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that you love us. Thank you we can do nothing to earn that love, that you graciously, you graciously always love us, even though it meant suffering. Thank you also for inviting us to follow your son, to love this world, to share your love with this world. Help us not to be afraid. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.